I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Ever snore so loud it registered as an earthquake or you woke up with a throat as dry as the Sahara Desert and a headache that could stop a locomotive? Well, I've had all of these because I have sleep apnea. Hi, I'm Scott Mitchell. Yep, I wear a machine plugged into a wall attached to a hose every night. Sound Sleep Medical changed all of this for me, and they can do that for you. They specialize in providing oral appliance therapy for individuals suffering from sleep disorders. In many cases, oral appliances have proven to be as effective as CPAP machines in treating sleep apnea. The lack of sleep is a serious health risk and has been linked to heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and even depression. The oral appliance I got from Sound Sleep Medical has freed me from a hose. I can go anywhere, and I've never slept better. Call Sound Sleep Medical today. Seriously, for a limited time, the first 25 people that call get a free consultation worth 200 bucks. Call 801-783-5451. It's 801-783-5451. Welcome to Dinner Table Politics. Abby and I recorded an episode right after the Parkland School shooting in Florida, and we never released it because by the time we were publishing these podcasts, it no longer seemed relevant. But unfortunately, the Texas school shooting has made it all too relevant again, so we want to take you back in time for this very special episode of Dinner Table Politics. Want to talk about guns? Oh, boy. I know you're excited to talk about guns. Ugh heavy subject this week. Well, it's really stunning. I went on Facebook this week, and one of the things that really frustrated me was seeing how much mockery there was of the whole idea of thoughts and prayers. I posted it, because people would say, my thoughts and prayers are with the victims and the families of the victims, and people are so disgusted by that particular phrase that anybody who says that they're thinking about or praying for the victims ends up on the receiving end of a great deal of snark. I don't think they're disgusted by it. I think they've seen it so many times with every single event that happens that it's like, what, what, what's the point? Like what, if you just keep saying thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, nothing is getting done. Right. That's where the, it's not, it's not that, oh, we hate that you're praying. It's that we hate that you're saying that possibly as an, like as a way to not actually take action. Well, and certainly thoughts and prayers are no substitute for concrete action and for doing something. Uh, I, I just think we've reached a backlash to the point where it's become just even a terrible thing to announce that you're thinking about or praying for victims of a tragedy. But in talking about concrete action, that becomes very problematic because it's we, we've created echo chambers where the people who are on different sides of this issue 
are screaming louder and louder, but the echo chambers are soundproofed. They don't listen to each other. People on both sides of this issue distrust each other so deeply and fundamentally that they're not able to come up with any kind of compromise solution. Do you see that, or does that frustrate you on any level? Um, well, I think one of the big things that's different about Parkland, Florida, is the the reaction of the students, the student survivors. Um, I've seen on Twitter at least probably at least three or four hugely viral tweets by survivors of the shooting who um, um, I think Trump tweeted something like something along the lines of thoughts and prayers. And someone tweeted back um, one of the students and it garnered like a million likes or something that these students are having a voice and are, I think they're planning also a walkout um, in a month on the uh, month anniversary um, to protest. And I think that that has been um, pretty inspiring to watch. Just, just the students themselves rally around each other and, and call for action. Okay. Well, so if you're calling for action, what action are you calling for? Gun control. That's, that's just any, any sort. The thing that, the thing that boggles my mind is, so we all, we all scream at each other and yell at each other after all these horrible tragedies happen but then literally nothing changed, literally nothing. Like some people call for mental health changes and other people call for gun changes, but then nothing happens. So it, it's like, it's insane to expect a different result when you're not changing anything. Well, uh, I will agree to that, but I also want to play devil's advocate a little bit because one of the things that also happens uh, whenever any one of these tragedies strikes and all of a sudden the screams are, well, the NRA has too much control and Congress is beholden to the gun lobby and they're evil and they're terrible. What that does to the gun lobby, what that does to the NRA and these kinds of organizations that back gun rights is it gives them a platform to say, see, all of these people want to take away all of your guns and they want to deprive you of your constitutional rights and we need more money. We need more influence to be able to fight those people who are trying to come and break down your door in the dead of night and take your guns away. And so, I, I, so I'm not arguing against your premise. I'm saying that the cultural and constitutional framework of the United States make it very difficult to, uh, you know, to confiscate guns, to buy back guns, to ban the sale of guns. And any kind of proposal that would suggest doing any of those things galvanizes the gun rights advocates to the point where you have this kind of standstill. One of the things that I'm seeing is a lot of people, they're posting graphics about how much money politicians are receiving from the NRA, and they insist that politicians are bought and paid for by the NRA. Do you have that impression? Yeah, that's basically the only impression that I have. Um, I saw... Um, I can't remember who it was on, on Twitter. They, they compiled a list of all these um, congressmen that had tweeted thoughts and prayers, stuff like that, and then, um, quote, tweeted them with the amount of money the NRA had given them. And these numbers were in, like, the hundreds of thousands of dollars, some close to a million. Um, and their point was just that these politicians, like you were saying, were, were just offering thoughts and prayers, but were secretly, it seemed like, taking money under the table Sort right. of like just dirty blood money, but I don't know how accurate that is. I haven't done enough of my own research. Well, 
I, I mean, the New York Daily News went so far as to say that Marco Rubio got $3.3 million from the NRA. Holy moly. Just for one, one like, election? or Well, no. Well, first of-, of all, that's completely illegal. Uh, as a political action committee, a political action committee can give – the NRA is a, is a PAC, a political action committee. Okay. And a PAC can only give $5,000 per election cycle. In other words, for a primary election, that's an election cycle. And a general election, that's an election what's a, cycle. What's a super PAC then? Well, super PACs... Because um, I've heard along the, along the same lines of people saying, oh, Planned Parenthood gave this person right. hundreds of... So, so. Well, a super PAC operates independent of a candidate. Uh, in other words, uh, a super PAC can spend any amount of money and raise any amount of money and spend it saying whatever they want... But they can't coordinate that effort with the candidate. So uh, if the NRA wanted to function as a super PAC, it could say, we think Marco Rubio is a great guy and you should vote for him. But they're not allowed to contact the Rubio campaign and get any input from them or run anything past them or do anything like that. And my understanding is that the NRA does not function that way. And so if the NRA as a PAC... Uh, is obeying federal election law, which I assume they are doing, otherwise they get into serious trouble, they can only give Marco Rubio $10,000 per election. Where did they get that number then? My guess is they're talking about independent expenditures or they're talking about any kind of efforts that they are doing that that uh, people perceive as being beneficial to Marco Rubio. But the idea that they're putting $3.3 million into Marco Rubio's campaign, is, is it's just simply not true. Um, I've seen smaller amounts in some of the graphics that look more accurate. They're more in the tens of thousands of dollars than they are in the millions of dollars. But this whole idea of the NRA buying politicians is interesting because your grandfather used to be told that he was being bought by special interests. And, uh, and his point that he would always make is if the NRA wants to buy a politician, why do they bother buying Marco Rubio? Why don't they buy Nancy Pelosi instead? Because she's a Democrat. Right. But if it's the money that is making them vote the way they want to vote, then you would think they would just pour money into the people that they didn't agree with. Uh, how much you know, anti-abortion money uh, or pro-abortion money does Marco Rubio get? Marco Rubio is fiercely pro-life. He gets no money from the abortion lobby. You would think that if you could buy politicians, if they were so easily for sale, that that money would go to politicians who disagree rather than politicians who agree. Maybe not all of them are for sale, though. Well, see, I I tend to think that politicians are better people than people give them credit for being and that the money follows people who agree rather than creates it. When people start talking about how we need to get rid of the NRA altogether – they, they seem to think that if they were to get rid of the lobbying organization that represents people, that the people they represent would no longer take any action to try to get their principles in front of legislators. And I, that's just simply not true. And I, you look at the First Amendment, which is if anything the most sacred – those are the most sacred principles we have in our republic. The right to lobby – is right there in the First Amendment, the right to redress the government, petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's what essentially what lobbying is. That's what the NRA is doing. And the fact that people don't like it doesn't mean that if that organization were to somehow magically disappear, that the people who use that organization to try to advance their agenda would disappear too.
Uh, I guess. I think people just just are, are are upset after something like this happens, and then people people that suggest more guns, which seems like that's the NRA solution. You have the anti-gun people screaming, you know, we need to do something, we need to take away the guns, and then you have the gun rights people saying, see, they're, uh, they're coming after your guns, they're violating your constitutional rights, and we're not able to find any middle ground. We're not able to do anything, and so we end up even more divided than we were before the event. That's the thing that frustrates me, and one of the things that I've tried to do even when I ran for Congress, as I said, look, I want to find – everybody screams, do something, do something. Give me some concrete examples of things that we ought to be doing. I think AR-15s should be banned. Nobody needs to own a semi-automatic. That was the gun that was used in Parkland. That was the gun that was used at the Harvest Festival shooting in Las Vegas. Uh, I think it was the one actually used at Columbine. All, nobody needs a, a rifle like that that can that can gun down – hundreds of people in a minute that that's nobody needs that well i think you're confusing semi-automatic semi-automatic weapons with automatic weapons no ar-15s are semi-automatic well i know they're semi-automatic weapons but almost every weapon on the market is a semi-automatic weapon a semi semi-automatic weapon is a, is a weapon that fires when you pull the trigger and you don't need to cock it or do anything else to release a round of ammunition except pull the trigger it's a very specific definition most handguns are semi-automatic at this point uh, AR-15 rifles are no different than many hunting rifles. No, they're very different. Nobody uses AR-15s to hunt. Well, they don't because they're not necessarily physically convenient to take out to, to shoot deer, but they have the same power power, firepower. No, nobody uses a- them because they are so powerful that I've, I've, I've done a lot of research on this, that they, they shoot... Um, like at subsonic speeds, like that, like one of the things that happened was like, um, in Las Vegas, it, the bullets would travel faster than the speed of sound. So there were moments where people before they could even start running that they were being shot at because they couldn't even hear the bullets and nobody uses them to shoot because they, they, they're so powerful that they like explode inside of the people's bodies almost. Like that's so that would destroy like whatever you're trying to hunt for. Like it's nobody needs that. Nobody needs that kind of gun. Well, in Las Vegas, you also had the extra added uh, terror of the bump stocks. Uh, you, they, they created a, a circumstance that essentially transforms a semi-automatic weapon into a fully automatic weapon. The difference between a semi-automatic and a fully automatic is that when you pull the trigger once on a fully automatic, these are the kinds of machine guns that you see in movies, uh, you fire off multiple rounds of ammunition, uh, you know, dozens of rounds per minute, and this bump stock was able to to essentially use the momentum from the pulling of the trigger in a semi-automatic to trigger another movement that pulled the trigger again. So essentially, you're transforming a semi-automatic into a fully automatic. That was that was essentially a fully automatic weapon that was being used in the Vegas shootings. Well, regardless, no one should need to own that. Well, right. Well, no fully automatic weapons have been banned in the United States since the Firearms Act of 1935. You can't get a fully automatic weapon in the United States. And that demonstrates actually one of the things that when I'm talking to gun rights advocates who say that there should be no regulation of guns, you go back to the Second Amendment itself, and it talks about the importance of a well-regulated militia and there's a lot of, you know, people up in arms as to whether or not that refers, the Second Amendment refers to an individual right to own guns or a militia's right to own guns. But I like to point out 
The words well-regulated are right there in the amendment. You can't, you can't pretend that there's the no possibility. Oh, yes, our dog is in the background making noise. Uh, but you can't pretend that the founders insisted that there would be absolutely no regulation of guns whatsoever when the words well-regulated appear in the Second Amendment. Uh, you know, we, and we, we have also, with the Firearms Act of 1935 for, for 75 years or whatever it is, I don't do math that well, but we have banned fully automatic weapons. And so it's entirely appropriate to discuss what kind of regulations would be wise and, and uh, appropriate and still in accordance with Second Amendment protections. Just as the Second Amendment is an absolute, the First Amendment is an absolute. You can't walk into a crowded theater, scream fire, and expect the government to let you get away with that. Yeah. So, but, so that becomes the challenge. You're not going to ban semi-automatic weapons without a massive shift in uh, public sentiment with regard to the right to own guns. You would have to some, to some degree gut the Second Amendment or repeal it altogether to make that happen. So I, so as I look at it, I, I look at different kinds of things like, what would you think of insuring guns the same way we insure cars? That when you buy a car, you are also responsible for buying insurance to make sure that when you use that car irresponsibly or do something wrong, that you're liable for it and that you have provided for an insurance to be able to pay for the damage you do. If you were to get gun insurance, that you would essentially, in order to be able to continue to operate and own a gun, you'd also have to be able to demonstrate that you have insured that uh, you're rolling your eyes here. They can't see. My eyes. But, I mean, what, what does that idea do to you? No, I, I think, and along that same lines, we have to get mandatory inspections on our car. Maybe you could get mandatory mental health inspections to own a gun. Well, the interesting thing, there was a proposal. There's a guy named David French. He's a conservative who writes for National Review. And he just published a, uh, an article over at National Review called A Gun Measure Conservatives Should Consider. And he, dis- he discusses the possibility of what he calls, um, it's a gun violence restraining order, or GVRO. And the idea is that California has a GVRO state statute. They've had one since 2014. And they, and reading from the David French piece, he says, broadly speaking, they permit a spouse, parent, sibling, or person living with a troubled individual to petition a court for an order enabling law enforcement to temporarily take that individual's gun rights away. Hmm. A well-crafted GVRO should contain the following elements. It should limit those who have standing to seek the order to a narrowly defined class of people, close relatives, those living with the respondent. It should require petitioners to come forward with clear, convincing, admissible evidence that the respondent is a significant danger to himself or others. It should grant the respondent an opportunity to contest the claims against him. That's really important because a lot of gun rights advocates are terrified that they're going to get their guns taken away without due process. Uh, In the event of an emergency ex parte order, an order granted before the respondent can contest the claims, a full hearing should be scheduled quickly, preferably within 72 hours. And lastly, the order should lapse after a defined period of time unless practitioners, petitioners, I'm sorry, can come forward with clear and convincing evidence that it should remain in place. What does that proposal do to you? Does that sound Uh, like that would make some sense? I, yeah, yeah. I would just like anything to happen at this point. Just anything. Well, I, I agree with you. And, and what I think a lot of people miss is that so would NRA members. 
I, the, the demonization that takes place after these kinds of shootings would have you believe that gun rights owners are, if, if not thrilled about school shootings, they are indifferent to them, that they don't care, that they aren't as torn up as everybody else is to see these children losing their lives. And I don't think that's the case. Uh, I, I think that people of goodwill on both sides exist and that we're not going to make any kind of progress on this if we can't sit down and have a civil discussion with people who have different ideas than we do and that both people who are involved in that f- can feel like they're being heard and that they are being understood and that they are being undemonized. I think that matters. I think it matters more that kids don't get killed as they go to school. I, I think it's, it's nice to say, oh, we shouldn't hurt the feelings of the people that want to just get more guns out. Well, people, people are dying still. Like it, people are dying. Kids, right. kids are dying. That's the most important point. You're right. You're right. And I, I, I can't argue with that. And I'm I not trying to argue And I think the time to that. not hurt people's feelings is long gone. Well, it's not about not hurting their feelings. It's about being able to get them to do something. Uh, when you're screaming at a lawmaker, do something, and you're also screaming, there's blood on your hands, that lawmaker is a whole lot less likely to do anything because they feel it's, – it's not that they feel like they're demonized. It's, they, they, they don't trust you. Neither side trusts the other side to be acting in good faith. And if we can't get to a point where we can trust each other to be able to listen to each other, then we're not going to be able to work together to find solutions. And the only way that we're going to have anything done is if one side utterly and completely defeats the other. And I don't see that happening. Politics is too much of a pendulum. It's, it's too difficult to say, all right, well, we're, you know, I, I'm seeing all of these people saying we're going to make the NRA go away forever. And even if you make the NRA go away, you don't make the people who support those principles go away. They're still out there by the tens of millions. You've got to figure out a way to work with them. But I, you're- I can see in the future, though, the, the tide shifting. Um, just I think with my generation growing up, I think what year was Columbine? Columbine was 99, I think. Colum- almost, almost 20 years ago. Okay, so I, I don't remember Columbine. Um, and I, I looked at a list today. Columbine does not even make the list of top 10 deadliest mass shootings in the United States anymore. And, and from what I've read, obviously, like I said, I don't remember it, that when Columbine did happen, it was shocking and horrifying and people were just appalled. And now shootings happen regularly. And, and, we've, and it, it's just part of life now. And I think my generation growing up with this, um, I think I think things will change when when um, the older generation um, is no longer making the laws. I think things will change. Just us us witnessing these kind of um, events occurring so often. Well, that means you need to run for office. I am not going to run for office. Well, so as long as. I- Geezers like me are the ones who run for office. It's going to be more difficult. But yes, exactly. Geezers. That's right. Got to get the geezers out. Got to get the geezers out. Well, so I'll give you the last word on that one, on, on the political landscape, and we'll talk to you next week. Peace out. Peace out.